You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. <laughs> This is the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, a show in which we read books by black authors, and they're talked about by a black author, and you can listen if you are black or not black. That is okay. This week on the podcast, we are discussing Andre Brock Jr.'s distributed blackness. It took weeks of saying I was going to get to this to finally get to it, but it's the summer. I'm not teaching. I have time and energy, and the necessary concentration to get through a book like this. This is a difficult book, Uh, so let's hop right in. This is going to be a long podcast right off the bat. I'll just tell you, this is going to be a long podcast. However, I will not be one of those people who says something like, buckle up. That will not be a thing that I say. All right, so how did I come to this book? I believe I came to it through a Black History uh, sale in February. Black History Month, that's what that's called. And I bought it. Actually, I I think it was like free maybe or like 99 cents. It was very cheap. Partially, I I assume, because it is a very difficult book. There's a lot of academic jargon. Uh, No offense to the writer, of course, there's very good ideas. But like when you're discussing the kind of things that he's talking about, these are difficult concepts and not written for a mainstream audience. Uh, Although some parts of the book, you know, as the book opens up, it gets easier. But at the beginning, when he's talking about methodology and theory, it's a little bit dense, and I, I actually had to read the introduction, I believe I read it three times, including at the gym this morning. I was like, you know what, let me go ahead and, I had already prepped for the podcast, but I was like, let me just go ahead and drill back in, and it actually did pay dividends. I did get a couple more little nuggets, so yeah, okay, so here's how we're going to go about talking about this book today. We are going to discuss the introduction, and then the first two chapters, not going to do the whole book, that would be insanity going to do the first two chapters. In the introduction, we're going to kind of just gloss over that pretty quick because it more or less sets up the book. So we will be referencing it, but not going in depth with it. We'll go more in depth with the first two chapters, which are distributing distributing blackness. The book is distributed blackness. The first chapter is distributing blackness. And the second chapter, which is information inspirations. And then we'll be back in a week or two. A week. We'll be back in a week. Let me not even joke around. We'll be back in a week with the next two chapters and then a week after that with the next two chapters. Or we might do four podcasts because the next chapter is about black Twitter and the next two are about respectability politics. So we might split it up a little bit, but we'll see. Maybe we'll just go in the order that I have it. So the introduction. Mainly, we get the reason for the book existing. Andre Brock Jr. talks about having gotten interested in this topic after reading some study on Trinidad and Tobago and how they had molded the internet to their use. They had like kind of created an identity to their use. And then he started noticing how online, I'm going to use his words here, there's the online aggregation and coherence of blackness, but there were no black bodies. So it's like he started to get his head around this concept, which he talks about in the book of an informational identity of blackness. And how black people could be suited for the internet and and technology in the same way that these uh, Trinidadians are being talked about in this study. So that's the basis for why he started the book. And then he also in the introduction, he talks about why the book is called Distributed Blackness. And he uses as an example, the Green Book and how some people might be familiar with that movie. 
I never watched it to be clear, but the book itself was about uh, people trying to navigate through the Midwest, mainly the Midwest, where they had these sundown towns where you couldn't travel after a certain time at night if you were black. And they had to navigate that. They didn't know where was safe, where could they stay, where could they be in these unfamiliar towns, right? So he was saying that if you think of the highway like the internet, a network, right? We're going to use that word internet here to mean it in the very mainstream sense, not in the scholarly sense, scholarly sense just as Brock does in his book. But the uh, internet and the highway both being networks and the green book being literally distributed blackness, something that is giving black culture to people who are in need of knowing how to navigate a largely white space. Which brings us to another thing he brings up in the introduction, which is that the default mode of the internet is whiteness, which is something that a lot of people don't necessarily recognize. So he makes an argument for that as well and presents it in the introduction. And then the last two things are he introduces his methodology, which is critical techno, critical technocultural discourse analysis. We'll get into that later. And libidinal economy, which we will also get into later, though not in depth. I mean, those are super important concepts to the book, but the way I'm going to talk about this book, I don't want to have to drill down into those concepts as much as he has to drill down into them because, you know, I'm not the author of the book. I'm just a guy reading it and kind of talking about the points that interest me. So let's go ahead and do that. Let's get into the first and second chapter, talk about the points of interest, and then afterwards we'll have a little bit of uh, some odds and ends, things that I just think are funny that were in the book. Okay, and as you may expect from a chapter that is kind of titled after the name of the book, kind of, again, the name of the book, Distributed Blackness, the name of the chapter, Distributing Blackness, as you might expect, it kind of serves as another introduction, one that's more in detail, and one that's kind of harder to understand, I would say, than the actual introduction. I feel like the actual introduction is more aimed at your average reader, and it's almost like a less an introduction than a warm-up. Like, hey, let's get you loose. And then the actual introduction is like, okay, I hope that you are able to understand because we're jumping right in to the deep end here. So what I'm going to do is jump all the way to the deep end. That is the end of the first chapter where he summarizes his points that he makes. So the three points that he makes in this opening chapter are technology as text. That's number one. Number two, identity as the tension between the self and the social. And number three, Blackness as a dynamic protein core of narrative gravity and weightlessness. So the reason I want to establish that is then I'm going to go through and talk about some points that he hits on the way to, you know, proving those things. And then the whole book is going to be kind of going back to these ideas. The first half of the book, he says in the introduction, is more about methodology and defining that. And then maybe not the first half, but the first part of the book. The second half of the book goes into the theoretical. But we're going to see these three themes throughout the book, right? These are the points that he's trying to make about black cyber culture. And another thing that he does early on in the book is define the difference between black culture and black cyber culture. Black culture is art, literature, music, etc. Black cyber culture is the actual way that black people uh, use technology in the digital world. So the first thing is technology is text. And Brock wants to prove that technology is text because, first of all, he wants to establish that Black people have been able to curate themselves and frame their stories in a way that they were never allowed to before in white media spaces that were 100% controlled by white people. Like if you were on TV, uh, especially like pre-BET or something, pre-cable television, 
But even post-cable television, if you were on mainstream television, often you were depicted in a negative way, or all black people were depicted in a negative way, or the only characters on shows were negative characters, or the only people they interviewed on the news were people who could be perceived in some way, shape, or form as being uh, some kind of negative representation of, of the black community. Without getting into like the discussion of respectability politics here, let's just say that we couldn't curate our stories, whether or not people should be judging people who look a certain way is a different thing. I feel like I started to sound like my coach there. He used to, he used to say that exact thing about how every time we're interviewed, it's always somebody that's doing something wrong, but a slight different conversation for another day. But the important part here is that we can curate our own stories on the internet and that if technology is text, that fits in nicely with the idea of identity being created by written text and it's like the preeminent mode of identity creation, which jobs, which jibes with the idea of, you know, language linked to consciousness, which is linked to thought. So if you go from uh, consciousness to thought to language, which describes the thought, to written text, right, and then digital text or digital spaces, which are also text, that is what ends up creating identity. Because, of course, it's easy to, the, the at least easy logical jump is to go from language to written text to identity, right? So that's easy. And if you just slot in technology there, then it makes sense that technology is another way to create an identity. And this is going to be a, a main point that Brock brings up again and again because he's saying that blackness is an informational identity. And we'll get into what that means in a moment. So, okay, so that's the first point. The second point was identity as, a, as the tension between the self and the social. So he defines two German words here. He talks about two German words. There's a, several foreign words in this, uh, in this book that are central. Foreign in the sense that they come from a different language, but they're used in English. But we have the uh, Geimenschaft and the Gesellschaft. I uh, hope I'm pronouncing those decently well. The Geimenschaft is social relations that are based off of like personal close relationships like your family and stuff and Gesellschaft are social relations that are impersonal like society at large and things like that and he makes a point in the book that he's not using those exactly but just for the sake of brevity we'll use those as a summary of of what he's getting at that there is your identity is based off of who you are innately and who you understand yourself to be and also who you are in relation to the society at large his larger point in this context is that blackness is specifically something that is a creation of Western imperialism. He says as much later on, and that it exists as a nadir for white people to measure themselves against, right? They can always point to that and say like, right, they're at the bottom and that positions me at the top. And that's how I know that I'm white and that white is good because black and all of the bad things that are in this society, all the uncivilized things that people do, that's what those, those black folks do down there. So, uh, that's um, part of what he was talking about, that idea that there is an identity that you have innately to yourself and the identity that is based off of the social construct that we all live in. Which brings us to the third thing, quite nicely, that blackness is a dynamic protein core of narrative gravity and weightlessness. Okay, so this one is the big one. I told you there's a lot of stuff here. Blackness is a dynamic protein core. So dynamic and protein. Dynamic we get. Protein changes a lot. Core of narrative gravity and weightlessness. 
So the ability for black people to, or the ability for blackness, not necessarily black people, because as he also talks about in this chapter, I don't want to use his words exactly, but essentially you have to want to be black. Blackness is a thing that you have to want to be. It's not just about race. It's about something that you decide to be because you have to identify with the group. It's not enough to just have black skin. And we won't name any of the various politicians and people who get paid money to go on TV and say ridiculous things or get paid money to be provocateurs on Twitter or get paid money to go to rallies around the country or run for governor of Georgia. We're going to talk about the various people who have um, decided that they don't, they no longer want to identify with their blackness, at least as far as I can see. I, I don't think there's anything about those people that's black other than the skin color. But so this is a very difficult concept, but the way I tried to understand it and the way he explains it earlier in the book is that blackness is this dynamic core that is sustained through intentional, libidinal, historical, and imaginative black agency in the context of navigating American racial ideology. Now you understand why it's important to define that identity thing where we're saying it's uh, what's inside and what's shaped by the outside. Blackness then as this thing that helps you navigate American racial ideology makes sense and it is a dynamic core of narrative gravity hell of a sentence but anyway sustained through intentional libidinal historical and imaginative black agency so it's something that you have to actively want to engage in it's something that involves your imagination and it's something that involves a knowledge of history in order for you to navigate america's messed up racial ideology so that's one way blackness is described in this text. And in that way, it kind of reminded me of a book we read earlier. I read earlier this year, or maybe it was last year, it was C. Riley Snorton's Black on Both Sides. And it also kind of reminded me a little bit of like negritude, which is different. But, you know, I was reading about that last week a little bit. Uh, but just this concept of like blackness as a thing, as a thing that like exists alongside of, of yourself as like an identity that's um, that's formed and then cultivated. That's not exactly what C. Riley Snorton was talking about. C. R. Snorton was saying that blackness was shaped and comparing it to the way that the black body was shaped and then comparing that to the way that trans people view their bodies. So there's that. But I just thought it's interesting in general. This like It's like blackness has become in its own way like a kind of like Marxism, where you can use Marxism to critique, you know, obviously that's nothing new. People have been doing that for a hundred years, but we're starting to see blackness as like a, as like an ideology, you know, and, and the Cedric Robinson book, Black Marxism, kind of was the first thing I read like that, where he's talking about blackness essentially as a refutation of capitalism and like a very, you know, this, this very identity being a a critique of Western capitalism. So I thought that part of this blackness definition was interesting because I think it has some crossover here with what, with what Brock's saying, although I think more in the context of uh, libidinal economy and pathos, which are two words that he has very specific definitions for, which you can, you can look up, but essentially just talking about how to survive in Western capitalism felt less like a, concept of critique, but more of a concept of how to survive. And the reason that these things are important for his larger argument is that he he wants to point out that black people and their relationship to cyber culture is valuable and different, even if it's not necessarily quote unquote progressive in the way 
the mainstream thinks that technology use should be progressive because um, for years, decades, for maybe the entire invention of the internet and longer than that with technology, it's always been, well, are they using that tool the right way? Are those black people using that tool the right way? And that's one of his points here is that he wanted to get away from that. That's why he defined that methodology so that he could get away from the what he calls definite deficit analysis of technology where somebody looks at a black person using, you know, black Twitter or let's take a more extreme example, world star hip hop. Somebody's on words, world star hip hop when they should really be on code Academy learning STEM to get their community out of poverty, you know, things like that where, um, where it's looked at like black people are misusing technology because they're not using it in the way to quote unquote, get ahead. But if blackness is not about necessarily, well, first of all, if life isn't necessarily about getting ahead, whether or not blackness is about getting ahead is a different thing. But uh, if part of blackness is about just navigating American racial ideology, then there's more to it than getting ahead because there's more to surviving than just putting your head down and buying sacks of rice and saving all your money and never having any fun because, you know, what you should be doing is work working, 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 working and saving all your money so that your family has more money. And then when you drop dead at 55, they'll go, wow, that guy really worked hard. You know, that, that guy really a model, a model for hard work. When uh, the question should probably be asked, like, why is it that anybody should have to work that hard? And why is it that anybody should have to earn their leisure? And why is it that it's okay for some people to have leisure? As Brock points out in his book, uh, you know, if you, you'll hear people say things like, well, they had money for an iPad, but they can't pay for this thing. He bought Air Jordans, but he didn't have money for that. Oh my God, like that. So yeah, so anyway, a little bit of a diatribe, but I think that gets at, gets at the general point of like, what he's trying to say about blackness as a especially within black cyber culture as a way to keep on keeping on greg tate quoting george clinton once said without the humps there ain't no getting over there's something to that concept of i think that ties in with what brock is saying here which is that uh blackness is the thing that helps you get over get through get up get down and we should add to the end of this that because I don't want to make it seem any kind of way. And I, I've never, you know, my, my, rel- my black relatives and all my black friends work. So all the black people I know work. So the myth that black people don't work is insane. So by saying that blackness is a thing that helps you get through, that doesn't mean that like, well, those just happy black people singing their sad blues songs and their, their um, nihilistic rap music, they sure know how to get by when the going is tough, but man, they don't work. Well, that's not what we're saying uh, because black people work. And um, a good poem on this subject, now I'm just really ranting, but a good poem on this subject is Jericho Brown's Four Day in the Morning. Faux Day in the Morning, as they say in the South. Faux Day in the Morning. Great poem, great poem. So yeah, blackness helps you get through, but it does not make you lazy, I guess would be the, the end point here. Okay, went on a little long there. But so that's the first chapter. Just to summarize it really quick, it is those three things. Technology as text, 
identity as a as a dualism between uh, what's inside of you and what's outside of you, and then blackness as this dynamic core that helps you navigate American racial ideology. And uh, so that's what he establishes in that in that first chapter. Getting to the second chapter, so that we don't so that we're not here all day. The second chapter is called Information Inspirations, and this one should be quicker. We should be quicker here. The main focus of this chapter is Blackbird, which was an internet browser that was like kind of like a Firefox, not a plugin, but like a Firefox. They used Firefox as a, I can't remember the, the technology term that the, um, the blog reviewer used, but they used Firefox as like the basis and they built off of that. But it was a completely separate browser. It was made for black people. Excuse me. It was made for black culture. White people could use it too. But it was made for black, it was made to deliver black culture to people who want to ingest black culture. And you could have been white or black, just like this podcast. Uh, so the way he discusses this is he goes through some blog reviews and he uh, does some comments too. He t- talks about people's comments on the blog reviews. And I think this thing came out in 2009. So, you know, it's a it was a bit old, but it, it's the first I had ever heard of it. And so, yeah, this was interesting. I think this is where we're getting more now away from the from the introduction in the first chapter where they're really kind of discussing the concepts. And this one kind of actually gets into it like almost like a case study, which is what the next chapter will be, too, when we go into black Twitter. So, OK, um, so then some checkpoints in this chapter was one thing was about how ideal browsers are culturally neutral. And it wasn't just white people who were saying this, you know, some of the blog reviews that he cited were written by black people. I think two or three of them were. So I think everybody kind of thought of that too. And the reason Brock was highlighting this is because he wanted to point out that that's not the case. The, these, these browsers assume that you are into mainstream culture. Now, this is not exactly his words. I'm using my words here, but this is how I view it. The browsers assume you are into mainstream culture and mainstream culture so far, even as prevalent as hip-hop is and as prevalent as we think the NBA is, but actually the NFL is more prevalent. And, and I don't know, other black things, other things, I, I don't know. For me, hip-hop and, and the NBA are like the two blackest things. There's two things that I've always done. But so, uh, <laughs> but as prevalent as those things are, they're kind of mainstream, but they're still not the default setting mainstream thing. And the news sites and Google search, when you go to the news, it'll take you to a non-black news source. When you Google search something, if a if a uh, black news source pops up, it's going to pop up on the, you know, 1000th page in. So he talks about it in more detail, but that's his basic contention. Now I was thinking about this because one of the commenters on the, yeah, so let's get into the comments. So the blog reviews are what they are. They make some good points, but I, I, I really love comment sections. This is actually true. I have never written a comment on a comment section in my life ever. Not one time. And I've been on the internet I'm 36, so basically, you know, uh, 26 of those years. The and the reason is because I just read them and I go like, right, well, yeah, it's not worth it. It isn't whatever you're thinking. It's not worth it to comment on this comment section. But sometimes you get some good ones. And so one of the good ones I thought that was here was this guy said, "Your Mac computer comes preloaded with all kinds of stuff," and I still didn't necessarily think that that means that um the browsers are designed for white people. I think that there's maybe a different thing there, but okay. But then it made me think, wait a second, a couple of years ago, there was a time where you bought a Mac or I think it was an iPad or an iPhone. You got the U2 album free and Joshua Tree it was, or maybe it was their new album. But the point is this, U2 is definitely white music. So 
the fact that that came loaded with white music made me kind of rethink this argument. There's another article that he said in here about how people had done research on coding languages and like how they're um, infused with whiteness. I, I thought that was interesting. You know, I, I've been coding since I was in high school and I've never thought about that. My first reaction is that I don't see it, but that doesn't mean that I'm not open to the idea. So I would say in general, like my first reaction to a lot of things is like, I don't necessarily see it, but I'm open to the idea. And I would actually say that was the tone of most of the blog reviews. Like I don't necessarily see the need for this browser, but I'm open to the idea. And I think that's interesting. I'm also open to being persuaded by Andre Brock Jr. as we go along in the book. Okay. But anyway, to get to a few more comments, uh, some of the critiques in the comments were ridiculous. So one of them, the guy said, uh, if Obama starts doing nutty stuff, would Blackbird censor that? And here's one of the reasons why I think that maybe this browser isn't necessary. Everybody's world is so curated already. And I'm going to take the focus off of black people because the the... This guy's comment and in general the comments, a lot of the comments that Brock highlights are things like, well, then black people will be so insulated they won't know anything and they'll just be dumb and ignorant and they won't read real news. And it's like, well, that's exactly what has happened to half of the country. And it has nothing to do with whatever. They don't they don't have to have a curated browser to read Breitbart, go to Facebook groups, not be able to double check information, not be able to be not not be able to have the least amount of like reading comprehension so the it's like a it's, it's like one i already think that our online spaces are so curated they become nothing but an echo chamber anyway so why are these things necessary maybe that's and brock has arguments for why they're necessary you know it's a, if you go back to the green book thing there are things that are still hard for black people to find on the internet so okay but two it's less a black person problem and more i mean misinformation seems to definitely be hurting a certain demographic and i'm sure some black people are getting misinformation but the specific type of misinformation that seems to be hurting the country the most looks to be generally aimed at non-black people and it looks to be doing a really really good job so it's just kind of funny to read these comments Years earlier, in 2009, we're like, well, the black people will be misinformed. <laughs> well, I don't know. We seem to have been pretty well informed and seem to be working out pretty well for us. But, uh, you know, maybe just worry about yourself. Another comment uh, was the guy who wrote the N-word 1,681 times. Brock points out that this was a common online troll thing where you just, you know, you just flood the page with the, with the N-word. Obviously, what a jackass, but and a piece of shit but like secondly this is like and i'm uh, unfortunately gonna have to be a little bit serious here but this is like that guy who got shot earlier this week 60 times where it's like the level you know it's never it's never on the level it's never proportional right i mean it's already horrible to shoot a man or call him the n-word not that these two acts are the same but it's already bad enough but 60 times and 1681 times and it's like man that's you know the 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 magnitude really matters. I think that's what a lot of people don't get about a lot of these acts where they're like, you know, with like the Highland Park shooting this weekend, you have people going like, well, what about Chicago? They had all this stuff going down here. And it's like, okay, first of all, that was a bad faith argument. We know that. Okay. But even just, let's just leave that part aside. One of these acts is done as an act of terror. And one of them is done as, uh, is, is crime, normal crime. Not that crime is good, but if you really cared, then you would be 
part of the, you know, dozens, hundreds of movements, Michael Harriet talks about it every time, that are talking about going in and helping impoverished places because black people understand that crime happens when people don't have good economic opportunities. We've done, there's been a million studies, you check the Pew Research Center, wherever you want to go, the statistics are out, nobody has to think about it. But so, an act of terror, by definition, is used to make people afraid. When you're shooting somebody 60 times, that's an act of terror. Like, that magnitude elevates it. And it doesn't matter that they're police. Uh, I actually didn't read about it because... I'm tired of reading about black people getting killed. I just assumed it was the police. Who knows? Could have been a homeowner. Who knows? Um, I mean, who knows? The people who actually can still stomach reading this shit. But 1,681 uh, N-words is similar magnitude of just ridiculousness, you know. So hopefully somebody punched that guy in the face if... Uh, just in general. I don't know how you would know him walking down the street. But if you if you see somebody and you suspect that they wrote the N-word... 1,681 times on a comment board in 2009, just haul off. Whatever. You could be wrong. Okay. And then the last comment that I thought was funny was there was the black guy on there with the dreads who says, I, I couldn't tell if he was serious or not. I, didn't, I think he was being sarcastic. But, okay, either either he was being sarcastic and it's funny or he wasn't being sarcastic. or He was being sarcastic and we're both making fun of the same person or he wasn't being sarcastic and I'm just making fun of him. Where he said... um, I wouldn't go to a black hair, I wouldn't use a black browser, and I wouldn't go to a black hair salon, and I wouldn't be in a black fraternity, and I wouldn't watch black television or something like that. And it's just that joke that I always make about the, and he said he wouldn't go to a black hair salon because he has dreads or locks, whatever you call them. And um, it's always that black guy. It's always the black guy with dreads, the alternative TM black guy, alternative TM black girl. Who's a little bit different, you know, it's a little bit different. I'm not like all these other ones, you know, the deep thinkers. To the, conclude this chapter actually has a section called conclusion where he makes his points because, you know, it's, there's a lot of information. And basically his point is Blackbird is a digital manifestation of the double consciousness. You know, he, du, du Bois's double consciousness is talked about throughout the book. I mean, you should have just guessed that was going to be the case. Every black scholar has to confront the Du Bois. And so he, he confronts the Du Bois, but he also talks about double consciousness in a very specific way. Earlier in the book, he says, double consciousness expresses blackness as a discursive informational identity flitting back and forth in the virtual space between a black communal context and a white supremacist categorical context. That's how he's come to interpret double consciousness. That obviously is not, <laughs> would have been absolutely impossible for that to be Du Bois's original conception of double consciousness. But once again, double consciousness expresses blackness as a discursive informational identity flitting back and forth in the virtual space between a black communal context and a white supremacist categorical context. So there you go. Um, sometimes you act a certain way in the black communal context. Sometimes you act a certain way in the white supremacist categorical context. And that's what he is calling, that ties in blackness as an informational identity. So then Blackbird would be this digital manifestation of the double consciousness where you are, to use his words, when you're using Blackbird, you are in the black communal context. And then occasionally you'll have to flip back, maybe when you're using Google Chrome, for the white supremacist uh, categorical context. Okay. And then the other thing 
that he was important about this. So one was to, you know, to prove that point of his about what blackness is. Uh, and, and again, I, you know, I want to be clear. I believe Brock is saying like, this is one definition of what blackness is not like, this is the only thing that blackness is um, just like for the purposes of this book, but also that blackbirds existence. So this is the second important thing about blackbird of his conclusions. Blackbird's existence proved that whiteness is the default mode. And it proved it because people were so angry about the concept of somebody coming up with a black browser, right? Now, I don't necessarily think it proved it because I do think there is something to the idea that browsers should be neutral, could be neutral, but I don't know. Maybe I'm just being naive about it. He does talk about China, India, and Nigeria in the book. I live in China. So I was trying to think about browsers here. And I use Google Chrome here. A lot of my students do. A lot of students use Safari because it's on the Mac. And a lot of students use Internet Explorer if they're on Windows. They still do over here. I know that that's crazy, but it's true. But the biggest one that's used outside of Safari or Chrome is 360. And it is a fucking disaster of a browser. (laughs) It's a disaster of a browser. And then I was thinking like, well... Is that got something to do with the way I organize information or something to do with the cultural identity here or something like that? And I, I don't know. I, I truthfully don't know the answer to that. I've been thinking about it all day because I was reading this book and, you know, my wife is Chinese and I was thinking about the way Chinese people use the Internet and the way I use the Internet. And so the book has at least made me think of those things. But I do I do think of the of the browser, at least being an equalizer and, you know, ideally being neutral. But that's precisely what Brock is saying is not true. So I've yet to be convinced by that argument, but I'm intrigued by that argument. I mean, I definitely think that the concept of preloaded book, he talks about this stuff in your browser, preloaded bookmarks and um, the, you know, the homepage being whatever it is, Yahoo used to be back in the day or whatever it is, and Google search results, bringing you to certain sites, but not to other sites. All of that stuff is true. So, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say it's wrong. It's just that I got to be, I got to be convinced. I got to be like uh, the guy in, um, what's that movie? Usual Suspects, who's getting the, who's getting Kevin Spacey's uh, monologue. I got to prove it, you know? So anyway, we have four more chapters to go, so maybe it'll be proven to me. So, oh, okay, so then some odds and ends really quick, because this is getting long here. Some odds and ends just to, uh, oh, no, just one. That was, he confirms that the gram is the term that black people use. I was arguing with somebody about this a couple years ago. Because, I mean, I don't use Instagram at all. Like, I'm on it, but I don't, actually, I've not posted a picture in years. And I call it the gram. But... My friend who was from Britain was calling it Insta. And I was like, nobody, nobody calls it Insta. But if you're from Britain and I mean, she's white. So maybe if you're from Britain and white, I don't know what black people in Britain call it. Maybe they call it Insta. But yeah, I'd never. And not only that, when I heard it, I viscerally was like, there's no way any black person in America has ever said Insta. That just wouldn't. That's so it doesn't even have the right cadence of something a black person would say. As like a standalone thing, 
You know, if you had your choice between if you just if you pulled a hundred black people who had never heard of Instagram but are from America, what would you call Instagram? Insta or the gram? I, I, 99 out of 100. Herschel Walker would be the only one who didn't. Uh, but anyway. All right. So that's it for today. We went long. I knew we were going to go long. It's a difficult book. An interesting book. The arguments in it are hard to get into at first. But once you drill down into them, there's some really interesting ideas. I think the concept of blackness as an informational identity is fascinating. I think the concept of technology is text text informing your identity identity is like a dual a, a, a dualism that is constructed of two things and then both of those things informing this blackness which is an informational identity is is fascinating and then some of the stuff about you know the internet and its default mode being white is are things that i agree with and then also things that i want to be further convinced by so i'm excited to keep reading i think that you know philip roth a long time ago said that uh you should read a book in like one setting and that the novel was going to die because people didn't have the concentration to do that anymore. Not one setting, but one go, you know, a couple of days, not like three weeks. But actually, I think books like this are much harder. You know, I read this book a month ago, maybe six weeks ago, and was like, oh, okay, I'll pick it up later. And then when I picked it up this week, I was like, I just have to start over because there's a lot of information in here. So it's better to read something like this all the way through uh, in as short a time as possible so that you you know, can hold on to the thread of the ideas. And so the last note I'll say about this is it is definitely full of academic jargon. You know, we have our hermeneutics, we have our um, ontologies and phenomenological and semiosis and uh, our uh, our French terms as well. We have a libidinal economy and uh, I have no idea how to say that word um out loud, so I'm not even going to try, but the one that is tied to the libidinal economy that means a pleasure of life, an abundance of life, uh, J-O-I-S-S-A-N-C-E. So yeah, it's, it's it's not an easy book, not an easy read, but a rewarding read and, and truly some really big ideas in here. All right. Be back next week with the next two chapters. The music, the intro, the outro music by The Keep Running. Check them out. The stuff is in the link. It's in the... It's in the uh, it's in the show description. Subscribe to the show, Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, etc., etc., etc. If you want to read something I've written, there's links in the in the show notes. And that's it. Until next time, stay safe, stay black, and keep reading. That's not fair. That's not fair at all. There was time now. There was was all the time I needed. That's not fair. <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs>